Well, if you will turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, 36 through 53 is our text today. All good things do come to an end. Today we are concluding our journey through the Gospel of Luke, a journey that we began I think back in November of 2019. And now, one pandemic and 78 sermons later, we come to our final text in this gospel, Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the post-resurrection encounter that Jesus had with two disciples as they made their way from Jerusalem down to a village named Emmaus. Our text today, verses 36 through 53, the last part of this gospel, includes the scene where Jesus in Jerusalem appears to the other disciples, demonstrates the fact that he is indeed risen And then he gives some final instructions to them before he ascends back into heaven, where he is even now at the Father's right hand. So as we think about that context, I wanna pick up now in Luke chapter 24 and begin reading in verse 36. These are the words that Luke wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, that this is not some fairy tale that we're reading or some fictional account, but God, these are inspired words that you gave to Luke, historical account 
of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus and that impact upon the world. Lord, as we consider these final verses in this gospel today, would you open our minds and our hearts and our our eyes to see and behold these things, these things these disciples experienced, these things that they were instructed in. And Lord, would you help us to glean what you would have for us from it today. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help, we ask for your aid, not only in understanding but in application, that you would empower us to be not only hearers of the word but doers of the word. For God's glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's actually in Luke's second gospel, the book of Acts, that he describes the disciples, these early disciples, as a group who had turned the world upside down. If you read Acts 17, verse 6, Luke is the author of the, the book of Acts. Luke describes the disciples as those who had turned the world upside down. Down, They would go forth boldly proclaiming the good news concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. And they would make a lasting impact wherever they went. So how did that happen? Because you, if you read Acts 17 verse 6 and you remember who these same disciples were, just a short time even after the resurrection of Jesus, you know that something drastic had to happen. I mean, these were the same men who had betrayed him, who had denied him, who had abandoned Jesus, had disbelieved him. They, they weren't expecting the resurrection. They hadn't believed the very words that he had instructed them. So how did these same men, how did these same disciples who had betrayed, denied, abandoned, and not believed Jesus go from that to turning the world upside down in his name? What happens? Well, I think what you see happened is clear for us in our text today. The short answer There's a lot to it, but the short answer is that these disciples had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. So they can go from this discouraged, downcast demeanor to being a mission force to be reckoned with in the world. But we know as we read this text, these disciples received a lot more than just a meet and greet with the resurrected Christ. The trajectory of their life would change forever. And that trajectory changes as they encounter the resurrected Jesus and as the resurrected Jesus reminds them of what he had spoken to them, as he instructs them, opens their minds to understand the scriptures, he commissions them to the world and promises them the coming spirit, so that they would be empowered in what they were sent to do. That's the sermon in a nutshell, in case you fall asleep. So as we think through that, what I want us to see as Jesus prepares to depart, as he he prepares to ascend back into heaven, 
He leaves his disciples transformed. And he leaves them with four critical things that would be part of this transformation and reorientation of their lives. Therefore, empowering them to further the cause of the gospel in the world. These are four things that I believe very clearly should still mark the church today. These are four things we're gonna see that impacted the disciples, transformed them, reoriented them, and changed them forever. And these are four things that ought to mark the church, mark, ought to mark believers of Jesus today as we go forward in continuing to fulfill the mission and ministry Jesus has called us to as his disciples. So what are they? What are these four things that change the course of these depressed and downcast disciples to turning the world upside down? Four things. We see the first one is this. They have been given a necessary assurance. A necessary assurance. In verses 36 through 43, we see this encounter that Jesus has with the disciples in Jerusalem. As the two disciples that had left Jerusalem, making their way to Emmaus, had that encounter with Jesus, Jesus reveals himself to them last minute, and now they've returned to Jerusalem. And what they do is they immediately make a beeline for the larger group of the disciples in order to communicate to them what they had encountered. And as they were sharing with the other disciples, guess who shows up? Jesus does. Jesus now appears on the scene in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. He appears and when he shows up, he pretty much freaks them out. They were shook. These disciples were like, what in the world is going on? But this time he doesn't vanish. He doesn't reveal himself, nor does he prohibit them from understanding who he is. He engages them. The very first word Jesus speaks to these disciples is peace. Peace to you. He doesn't bust in on them and criticize them for their abandonment, for their denial, for their disbelief in the scriptures. He could have, he could have rebuked them. He had every right to do that, but he doesn't. He speaks a word of peace to them. This is who Jesus is. He is a savior who speaks peace to sinners. He could have recounted all of their recent failures, but he doesn't. He speaks peace and then he asks them, verse 38, why are your hearts troubled and why do you, why did doubts arise in your hearts? He, he, he leans into their pain and struggle, but in a way that is transformative, going to be transformative. He's seeking to do them good. And this is just a little glimpse, brothers and sisters, of how Jesus responds to his disciples, even amidst their deepest failures. Isn't that good news? Jesus knows you perfectly. He knows every fear, every doubt, every ungodly desire and sin you've ever committed in your life, and he stands ready always to offer you forgiveness and extend peace to you. 
This is what these disciples needed in that moment. They were at rock bottom. And now Jesus comes and he speaks a word of peace. And not only does he do that, he says, look, see my hands, my feet, touch me. He says, I'm no spirit, I am here in the flesh. Now we know that they, they are still a little skeptical at this point. Verse 40 says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, that's a weird phrase, disbelieved for joy. They're just kind of dumbfounded still. Things are starting to click for them and they're happy, but they're just like, they, they, they just can't believe what they're seeing. That's really what that phrase means. They just can't believe it. Like they're, what, what in the world is going on? But their doubt is met head on when Jesus says, look, touch me. And then he goes a step further and asks for some food to eat. And they give it to him. So what we see here is that Jesus appears on the scene. He invites their touch. He eats with them in an effort to prove and demonstrate that in fact, he had been raised from the dead. This was an important step to assure the disciples the resurrection was true. They needed all fear, all doubt, all uncertainty to be erased from their minds so that they would be transformed and equipped to give themselves fully to the mission to which they would be called. These were the men that were gonna be those who turned the world upside down for the cause of the gospel. And if they didn't believe the resurrection was true, that wasn't going to happen. So Jesus demonstrates it, he proves it. The encounter with these disciples, I think is an important one and it serves us as well. Their faith here is emboldened, strengthened, renewed. They are now connecting the dots for the first time, especially as Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures and as he demonstrates the validity of his resurrection before them, inviting their touch and et cetera, he's, he's emboldening their faith. And as such, it ought to embolden ours. Do you remember what Jesus, if you read the Gospel of John, John's account, you remember what Jesus told one of the, one of the disciples named Thomas? Thomas the doubter, remember doubting Thomas? Remember what Jesus told him? He said in John chapter 20, verse 25, so, so this, is, this is actually Thomas speaking. Thomas just speaking out loud, just kind of his mind. And, and Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's what Thomas said. He said, I'm not gonna buy this resurrection stuff unless I can actually see it and touch it for myself. Then eight days later, Jesus comes to where the disciples had gathered and Thomas as well. And he tells Thomas to do exactly that. He tells Thomas to place his finger in the nail scars and his hand in his side. And then he says to him, do not disbelieve, but believe. After which Jesus says to Thomas, 
have you believed because you have seen me? The implied answer is, of course. And then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Brothers and sisters, we, we can say with certainty some 2,000 years after Jesus was raised from the dead that he lives. The reason we can say that with certainty is because of the early eyewitness accounts that we have recorded for us exactly right here in this text. There were people who saw him and people who touched him and people who fed him. It strengthened their faith and therefore by extension ought to strengthen ours as well. It's confirmation. And this confirmation of Jesus being alive is the fuel partly of our mission and purpose in this world. Paul said it best, if Jesus had not been raised, then we are still in our sins and our faith is in vain. If Jesus had not been raised, this is all for nothing. So let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? But they were given this necessary assurance because they were given this necessary assurance, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ thousands of years later can have the very same thing. As we look back to these eyewitness accounts, as we look back to the, what's recorded for us. So they were given this necessary assurance. This is a necessary assurance that I think is important for us today, the, the truth of the resurrection. Guess what? All these years later, no one has disproved it. There's not a tomb, there's not a grave that anybody can go to. It's empty. And we have this assurance of Jesus being alive. Number two, we, we see that they were given a clear mission. So as Jesus reveals himself here and as he, as he reassures them of his resurrection, he now gives them a clear commission. He speaks to them, he says in verse 44, this is right after he had the fried rockfish. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is Jesus doing? Again, I said this last week, Jesus could have just revealed himself to the disciples and that would have been enough. Okay, you're alive, it's true. But what does he do? He does this again. He did it last week. He takes them back to the Bible and he shows them from the Bible how these things must have been. He anchors the truth of the resurrection. He anchors the truth of who Jesus is, not merely in experience, but in objective truth through the word. kind of a repeat, like I said, with what he did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He reminds them how he had shown them from the scriptures everything the Bible had said from the law, from the prophets and Psalms. This is a shorthand for referring to the entirety of the Old Testament, how the entirety of the Old Testament had pointed forward to this promised Messiah of which he now fulfills, being the main topic of these scriptures in fulfillment. And then he goes into this other, another small group Bible study. He opened their minds, verse 45, to understand the scriptures. It shows us, by the way, how we need understanding. We need illumination. We need the, the work of God, by the Spirit of God, by Christ, to open our minds to understand the Bible. That's what he does for these disciples. He shows them what he'd already been teaching them. 
This is not new. Takes them right back to where he had taken them before. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He's showing them how the Bible must be foundational to what the disciples believed. Indeed, their ministry was going to be dependent on them believing the Bible, believing what God had spoken, believing what God had revealed through the scriptures. That was the authority that was to drive them forward. And as Jesus prepares to depart, what he's doing is he's assuring the disciples of all of these things. And now he's instructing them yet again because he's about to deploy them. He's about to mobilize them to go to the ends of the earth with this good news so that the world could be saved. He's preparing them for this clear mission moving forward. And as he does so, notice two things that he gives them about this mission. We pick up on that there in um, verses 46 and 47 regarding what, where they're going to go. But I want you to notice, first of all, this mission that they are given is a mission that's rooted in the gospel. Again, Jesus introduces the basic content in verses 46 and 47 of the biblical teaching as being centered on what he would fulfill and accomplish. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer the Old Testament spoke about that, that he should die, he should suffer for the forgiveness of sins as a substitute, as a sacrifice, as an atonement for sin, appeasing the wrath of God. This, this one would, the Christ, the Messiah would suffer. Implied in that is that he would die and on the third day rise from the dead. This is the work that was required in redeeming sinners. And then that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So this, this content that, that the disciples were to focus on from the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament. You have to remember that. I think sometimes we forget that. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and it, the rest of it. They were living that, like, like they were part of that story, right? They had the Old Testament. Now they were being sent by Jesus to the nations with only the Old Testament in hand, which shows us the continuity of the Old and New Testament, right? All of these promises that, 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 that were laid forth in the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus now fulfills, they had that fulfillment in, before them. They were now to go to the world and say, the Messiah that these Old Testament scriptures have, have pointed to, he has come, he did die, he was raised on the third day so that forgiveness of sins could be possible for you. That's the message that they were to go forth proclaiming. It's the same message we go forth proclaiming today. We, we don't get to make up what we, we, what we tell the world. Like, like that's, not what, that's not how it works. It's not as if God says, okay, great, you're in. Now just go tell the world whatever you want to. Just pick something. No, it's the, the gospel that, that, that we are driven, that we are compelled to go proclaim. It's what Jesus says here. It's a, to be rooted, it's a missions to be rooted in the gospel. But it was also a mission that was to be focused on the world. The point of showing them all this from the scriptures was because they would soon be 
deployed and mobilized starting in Jerusalem and to be sent outward from Jerusalem to tell the known world at that time the truth. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Whose name? The one who suffered, died and was raised on the third day. His name, the Messiah, the Christ. The Old Testament had promised would come to be the sacrifice for sin. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is also, by the way, implies very clearly, not just implies, it says it, that there should be a response to this gospel. This is not just news that goes out and just because it goes out means everybody's covered by it. No, you must hear this news and must respond to this news by believing in Jesus and repenting of sin. There's a response that is required here. He shows them, tells them, like, listen, you need to understand the promise and fulfillment so that you can go to the nations proclaiming all that Christ has done and call men, women, and children from every nation to receive this good news through faith and repentance. In short, Jesus is saying, the Bible shows how I had to come die and be raised again. This was so that sinners could be reconciled to God and I'm about to return now to my Father in heaven, but you disciples will be sent to the world as my witnesses so the nations could receive this good news and be reconciled to God. This is Luke's version of what we know famously as the Great Commission. The Great Commission, we often go to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 to talk about the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, etc. That Great Commission, this is Luke's version of that. This, friend, is the great missionary task of the church whether it begins with your neighbor across the street or being sent among the nations across the sea. This is the task disciples of Jesus Christ have been given. Jesus said, this message of the Messiah, suffering, death, resurrection, the gospel, this message should be proclaimed, announced in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the strategy. It's been the plan all along. This wasn't just a new thing Jesus sprung on them. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God promised Abraham, he promised to make Abram the father of many nations, didn't he? God's global vision has existed from book one of the Old Testament. His plan has always been to send a savior. And for those who have been redeemed by him from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, that they would be gathered as his own. And that this, news would be gone, that this news would reach to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, the same task these disciples have been given here is the same task we are responsible for today. Our task is to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, beginning from Jerusalem. So well, I don't live in Jerusalem. Okay, St. Mary's County. 
This means we have an obligation right here in our community. God has sovereignly, providentially placed you here, like it or not, for the season in which you exist here. He's given you this opportunity sovereignly and he's called you to be an ambassador of Jesus right here where you live. But friends, we can't forget that God's plan is also global. It's not an either or. I often have this. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes not, but it always seems like I have this pushback sometimes. We'll talk about the nations and people say, well, we can't forget about missions right here. Well, of course not. The Bible's clear on that. Go to the earth, go to the ends of the earth, go to the nations, but beginning in Jerusalem. But here's the simple fact. Every week, every week, just our little church right here, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, we send out 150 to 200 missionaries every week into this community. And so do other churches in this community, other faithful evangelical Bible-believing churches, solid churches in this community doing the same thing a community of about 115,000 people. There are several churches to choose from in this community if you want to be part of a local church. I'll make the argument we need to plant more. That's another conversation for another day and something the elders have on their purview. You and I are called to be on mission in this largely lost county. And that includes our brothers and sisters in other churches. My point though is this, there are hundreds if not thousands of Christians that are being sent out as ambassadors in St. Mary's County every day of the week. But there remain places in the world where there is no believer. There, there is no church. There is no Bible. There's no gospel witness. People are born, they live an entire life, they die never hearing the name of Jesus, ever. They don't drive by a church that says Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and say, what's a church? What's Redeeming Grace mean? They don't even have that. And so when there's urgency and priority placed on the nations, it's, it's a right, it's a right posture. It's a right re, re, reflex because there are places in the world where this doesn't even exist among millions of people in population. Not even one. That's why we talk about, certainly this time of year, the importance and the responsibility that we have to go to the nations and right here it is in our text. As a reminder, beginning from Jerusalem, don't forget about Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this week, you're Jerusalem, right here in this community, you have an obligation and responsibility to go live as disciples and ambassadors right here, serving your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students at school, your friends, your family, whoever it is God's put you around, go and tell them about Jesus. But we also want to remember that God's purpose is global. That's why we put out prayer requests weekly in our email newsletter, our home groups, are praying every week for mission points and unreached people groups in the world. 
That's why we are linking arms with the International Mission Board in the United Kingdom. Talked about that last week in our members meeting. Talked about this new opportunity to partnership there in England. That's why I'm asking you. I'm just not doing this because we get paperwork and it's cute posters that we put up and it's, oh, it's kind of a neat thing to do. That's why I'm asking you. I'm asking you to give sacrificially and generously to this Christmas offering this year, not because so that we can boast about a goal being met, but but so so that other people can hear the gospel. That's why I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to do it generously. That's why some of you, that's why some of you also ought to seriously pray about going to the nations yourself. Jeremy shared this morning during our prayer time of how many opportunities even the International Mission Board provides from high school all the way to retirees of how you can serve the nation, short-term, mid-term, long-term. That's why some of you ought to be praying. I know that see, all, all of us can't go. Well, no, that's true. But some of you should. All of us should at least ask the question, what would keep me here? when there's great need among the nations. Currently there's 11,945 people groups in the world. People groups meaning same group of people that share language and cultural identity. Of those 11,900, are classified as unreached, meaning there's less than 2% of those people groups that have evangelical gospel witness among them. Some 4.7 billion people in the world would be among the unreached. There's 3,000 people groups, 3,179 that are unengaged. Remember when I said there are places in the world where there's no Christian, there's no church, there's no Bible, there's no gospel witness, 3,179 people groups, some 280 million people in the world, that that is the case. That's why we talk about the nations. Jesus was clear about the scope of our mission. It includes Jerusalem. It's not either or, it's a both and. It includes Jerusalem, but it goes to the ends of the earth. It's a massive task. And it's one that does require an all hands effort, but, but even at that, This task, this task that requires us starting in Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth is a task that is not ultimately dependent upon our own strategies and strength. We need something more than just ourselves to empower and enable us to get the gospel to the ends of the earth so that people can be saved and be discipled and gathered in churches. Which leads me to point number three, a supernatural provision. Jesus has provided them a necessary assurance. He's given them a clear mission. It's a mission that's to be preaching the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, going to the ends of the earth. And now he's saying, but hold on disciples, wait in Jerusalem because I am going to send. The father is going to send a promise. He says that in verse 49, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, I want you to turn over to Luke's second book. The book of Acts, chapter one. Acts chapter one, I want you to look at the first four verses. Acts 
Luke writes in the first book, O Theophilus, that's Luke's gospel where we've been for a long time. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them. That's what we've just been reading and talking about. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this promise that Jesus refers to at the end of Luke is the promise of God sending the Holy Spirit into the world. Then, I'll not, then notice what he goes on to say. Verse six, so that when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus there, the book of Acts, we see, again, reaffirms what's going on, what these disciples would be part of. They were now being sent as ambassadors, as missionaries to the world, and that as they were being sent, they would do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who the Father would send to strengthen, empower, and dwell his disciples to fulfill the work he left for them to do. The role of the Holy Spirit is a role that we cannot neglect. We have to remember that it is the Spirit of God who comes upon the people of God and dwells the people of God to accomplish God's global purposes in the world. The hope of the nations rests in God's people, empowered by God's spirit to proclaim God's word. Don't forget that. You take any one of those things out and the mission will fail. God's people. Jesus has left the responsibility to tell the world about him and to make disciples, to make followers of him, gathered in local churches like this, He's left that responsibility to us, but not just us, us pre proclaiming a word, proclaiming the gospel, teaching the scriptures, empowered by the spirit. We can do lots of nice and good things in the world as God's people, but this great missionary task is the one that must be the main priority. These are the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples. Now, you can imagine how overwhelming this must have sounded to them. But this assurance, not only the assurance of his resurrection, but this assurance of the promise that was to come was absolutely foundational. And we know that that exactly happens as, we, as you keep reading the book of Acts. Chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Spirit descends and comes upon the people of God, you see the empowerment of the disciples. He assures them that they would have a helper. 
And that is so true today that we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we as followers of Jesus have a helper, the Holy Spirit, God himself in us to empower us with this great task. We have this supernatural provision, but then number four, these disciples were to be marked by a joyful worship. We know in Luke 24, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him, we're told. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So after Jesus gives them their commission, after he reassures them that he's alive and then he gives them their commission, he gives them their marching orders and then he promises them that the Holy Spirit is coming he blessed them, we're told, and was carried up into heaven, the, what's called the ascension. Jesus is carried back into heaven. Again, Luke repeats that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So I want you to hear it from him a second time. So after Jesus, in Acts 1, verse 8, tells them that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And as they watched him depart, Luke tells us in his first gospel, we're told that they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, continually blessing God there in the temple. What a change. These same disciples who just a day or so ago were in the deepest pit of despair. They were depressed, they were grieved. They are now going from this gloom and despair to a joyful worship, blessing God in the temple every day. Friends, this is what happens when we encounter the risen Christ. We worship. Worship. We worship God. We worship him for who he is. They, they were going to be sent out and would turn the world upside down for the cause of Jesus. They'd been assured of his resurrection. Their minds had been opened to understand the scriptures. They were now commissioned to take the good news to the rest of the world and they were promised the Holy Spirit would come and empower them. And all of that results in worship, in joy. Jesus shows us here why Christians of all people in the world ought to be marked with joy and worship. We ought to be the happiest, most joyful people on the planet. The reason that is true is because our Savior lives and he has given us his spirit to fulfill his purposes in this world. Now, some of you might not feel so joyful today. I know earlier we sang joy to the world, the Lord has come, and you're like, yeah, not so much. Maybe some of you. Maybe you're having whatever circumstance, maybe you're having a real hard time finding joy in this world at this moment. having a real hard time responding with worship in this season of life. Friend, can I remind you that Jesus has not left you without reason to rejoice. He himself knows what it means to suffer 
Indeed, he endured the greatest act of human suffering so that we could know the greatest joy. He suffered in your place. He rose victorious over sin and death. He now sits at the Father's right hand as your advocate, interceding for you. He sends his spirit to be your comfort, your helper, your strength. And not only that, Jesus has promised to come back to receive us to himself and to make all things new. So brothers and sisters, whatever trial you may be enduring this season of life, there is reason to rejoice. It may be hard. I don't ever wanna overlook that fact. It may be extremely hard, but as a follower of Jesus, there is reason to rejoice. There is reason to be joyful. You may not be in the middle of a trial or a struggle, you may just simply be plugging away at life, finding your significance in earthly things. And as such, you, you, don't, you don't sense joy in your heart. It's, because, it's not because you're going through a trial, it's because you're putting your significance and your identity and all the things that the world has to offer and you find it empty. Therefore, there's no joy, true rooted joy in your heart because it's not centered on Christ. Brothers and sisters, just a reminder that when we encounter the risen Christ, when we understand what he has given us through his suffering and resurrection, through his promise to come again, through his empowerment of the spirit, through the clear mission he's given us, there is reason to rejoice and reason to worship. And that's what they did. Indeed, it would be their very worship of Christ that would fuel them in the mission that they would be sent for Christ. You know, it's interesting that Luke begins his gospel. He begins the gospel really with the temple. In Luke chapter one, we have Zechariah in the temple looking and praying to God, looking for the hope of Israel. He's praying to God there in the temple. And here in Luke chapter 24, at the very end, we have the disciples in the temple praising and blessing God because they had found that very hope. And it was this hope fulfilled in Jesus that would result in them truly turning the world upside down for the cause of Jesus in the world. And as Jesus ascends back into heaven, we're told that he blessed them he blessed them. But we know, friends, that the blessing of God would not only rest upon them. His blessing was for all who would come to him in faith. Indeed, as the hymn says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. His blessing falls upon the world. Brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in the resurrected Christ, you have this very same hope. You have the blessing of being part of this very same gospel work. Luke said in chapter one, I write these things. He says, I write these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And it's that very certainty that grounds us 
in this mission as we go onward into the world to fulfill this great commission. It's that certainty that informs us, assures us of the truth of the resurrected Christ. It's that certainty that clarifies the mission to which we're sent in this world to reach the world with this gospel. It's this certainty that tells us about the empowerment that God promised and sent the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's this certainty, it's this certainty, brothers and sisters, that leads us to rejoice and to worship the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. So we have much to be thankful for from Luke. As we think about the resurrected Jesus, as we think about this mission, a mission to reach the nation starting in Jerusalem, a mission that's empowered by the Spirit of God, and a mission that results in us worshiping the Lord. Let's be all in. The mission is set. The Savior has come, and he's promised to come again. Let's tell the world about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've given us in Christ. We thank you for this opportunity that we've had to spend in this gospel. Lord, I know that there are many things that we could have said, many things that we could have seen in addition to what we have seen and what we have said. But Lord, would you help us today as we consider your word, as we consider the clarity in which you gave your disciples before you ascended back to the right hand of the Father, Lord Jesus. We, we ask that you would help us to be dependent upon the very same things, this, this assurance of your resurrection, the clarity regarding our mission, the reality of your spirit being present in our lives to empower us. And Lord, what worship we're to enjoy all along the way. So Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that you keep these things ever before us. And Lord, when we have failed to pursue them, that you would correct us. And Lord, that you would keep us to the task at hand. Lord, again, thank you so much for this word, for this gospel, for what you've taught us in it. We ask that you continue to help us to grow as your people, conform to the image of Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.